We are now recording, and this is Out Now with Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron and Abe. Well, he's he's away right now. But anyway, Out Now is a film podcast where Abe and I discuss new movies weekly. However, every now and then we like to get these special bonus episodes, whether it's one of our fun commentaries or something completely different. And this is one of our fun commentaries. This is the February 2018 commentary, um, where we will be discussing the film Dark City, Alex Preuss's Dark City. Um, as I've explained many times, the theme of the first three months of this year's podcast is to go back in time to 20 years ago when Titanic was crushing all the competition and many films in its wake were box office bombs. Um, Dark last month was Deep Rising, um, which was fun to dig into and uh, with uh, a friend of the show, Jim Dietz, of course, and one of our guests here today. And this month we have Dark City, also a famous bomb, but also much better in quality than Deep Rising, I would fair to say. Um, but yes, joining me to discuss Dark City, the director's cut, by the way, uh, we have from Why So Blue and the Colson McCavalcade podcast. He cannot remember the last time he did a podcast during the day. It's Brandon Peters. Hello. Have I become like that guy who's always on Hollywood Squares? Yeah, you're the whoopie. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> you're the whoopie about now. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's like, you know, he he's not working. He's always he might be in he might be in the corner. Sometimes we'll give him the center square, but he's there. Also joining us, we have from Forbes. He's the kind of killer that thinks to save a dying fish. It's Scott Mendelson. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes, good to have you both back here. Uh, I'm really looking forward to talking about Dark City. This is a favorite film of mine. I'm, I imagine you both also like it quite a bit. Oh, yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's what the plan is. We're going to be talking for throughout uh, Dark City. First things first, if you haven't listened to the other three commentary tracks on here, <laughs> th those are good to listen to. Um, this will be better. This 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 will be better than at least one of them, the one of Goyer. But but um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, there is a there is a commentary track. This is we'll get into this. But this like this had a great DVD release, and now it has an even better Blu-ray release. It had like mm -hmm. a few years ago at this point. But like Roger Ebert has a commentary track on this, which is fantastic. And of course, director Alex Preuss has a commentary track on here, which is also very good. And there's of course the writers Lem Dobbs and Debbie S. Goyer as well. But regardless, yes, those are very good commentary tracks that you should certainly spend time on if you want to actually learn things about the movie from people that actually made the movie or were very much a champion of it and are much better film critics than we are um but that said we're gonna have a lot of fun i think we're gonna get a lot to a lot of info on this film Ebert, uh, you know about movies yeah that Ebert, you know he, he tries uh his, he, he a, even shows up in a featurette too he's got one yeah with, uh he's in camera the, interview yeah he he was all over this we'll get into that he championed the hell out of this thing and knowing, um, but yeah, we're uh, we're gonna talk over this film like a commentary track. Uh, we all have it. The three of us have it currently synced at ten seconds in on the director's cut version of this film. To keep that clear, um, so if you're following along, if you're gonna watch the movie and listen to us, first off, great. Second off, sync your film now. Just you know, pause it at ten seconds. I'm gonna count. To, if you're not following the film, you're just listening to us talk over it. Good on you. You don't have to do anything. You can just keep listening. Um, but yeah, I'm going to count down from three, and on the sound of go, we're all going to press play and just start talking over the movie. Um, so I think we're all good on everything else. You guys ready? Yep. I'm ready. All right. Three, two, one, go. Okay. Dark City. When does this movie come out? February 27th. Yes. So, end so, of February. So, like, so we're saying, like, Alex Proyas. Uh, kind of like Disney does with Scott right now, used to have Ebert in the bag and, and would pay them for good reviews. <laughs> but instead of going for all the critics, he's like, I'm just going to go for the one. 
you know, it's it's fitting that uh, the movie Annihilation comes out this week because I first saw the trailer for Dark City at Mortal Kombat Annihilation. That was the first time I saw this trailer. <laughs> uh, and at that point, I was like, what's this going to be? <laughs> this, this, this looks funky. You were just chilling like Sub-Zero and got a, a trailer that... Yeah. Awesome. You joke, that was the top movie of its opening weekend ahead That's... of the heavily hyped Anastasia. Really? Uh, Does the Mortal Kombat yeah. sequel beat Anastasia? Wow. We're about 10 minutes. Fox really uh, did not know what to do with their animated films. <laughs> No, no, it was it was Anastasia went the long wall, but it just it it, it was those, such the, a those were Thanksgiving releases, right? Weren't they? It was the weekend before Thanksgiving. Yeah, okay, so no, it was taking advantage of the holiday. Yeah, but no, I saw the fir- I I saw the first preview for Dark City in front of Scream Two in a packed opening night audience. Oh, so you're and let me tell you, time. watching that one, that trailer in front of that audience, I was sure this film was going to be a huge hit. Wow. Mm. They're, they're it, ready for this. Um, it had a great, great trailer, um, and of course, you know, this was a month before Titanic. Well, this is haha, a week before Titanic even opened. And as you mentioned, I mean, it, it, this is one of many, many pretty good to great movies that just got steamrolled. Now, I'm not saying this film would have been a huge hit, regardless. It is a pretty challenging piece of commercial cinema. And as much as I like it, and I do, it is unconventional in ways that don't necessarily scream date night at the movies. Yeah, oh. I, I mean, I found it on VHS. This is one of those like, hey, did you did you see Dark City? You got to see, Dark... and it kind of built for me like what through the rental. Like, like I remember the trailers, and I never saw it in the theater, but it was one that everybody talked about when it came on VHS, and yeah. it yeah, kind of yeah. it kind of feels like in the nineties. If you look back, there there was these strange, uh, like movies, you know, with a certain aesthetic and such. Like you, I'll throw like, I know Aaron hates this movie, but I'll throw it in there too, like a Cube, or whatever. But none of them were doing Cube, well. I'm just but, not a big fan of it. That's all. But it was all sort of building up, and then the Matrix like was the one that just broke through. Like there was like yeah. I'm not, you know, there's there's gonna be hipsters there, like, uh, you know. <clears throat> I like the Matrix better when it was called Dark City or like, oh, Dark City's a real bad Whatever. They're both good. You're allowed um, to like both. <laughs> you can like both and you can appreciate that, um, you know, the Wachowskis were not ripping off Dark City when they made the Matrix. Well, it's, but... what, what's, what's, what's funny is like, apparently studios were really like, we need to get in on this kind of thing, despite not really having a clear definition of what it was right. or what have you, but a lot of screenwriters and directors were like, yeah, I have an idea. And so you have Dark City, Matrix, 13th Floor, Existence, Q, mm-hmm. like they yeah, all seem exactly. to be doing yeah, a lot of the... Floor, yeah. yeah, they all seem, which is the worst of the bunch, but they all seem to be doing like <laughs> the same kind of thing at the same time. Uh, but this is like 98, 97, 99 era where you have a lot of mm-hmm. random movies that are seen. a lot of like apparently a lot of people were pushed to the wall and be like um, I don't know a giant comet hits the earth and we get two of those movies in the same year or uh, I don't know volcanoes I, um, <laughs> I have to assume you know not being too you know cliche that some of this was Y2K anxiety yeah because um, yeah. you did see a lot of films that were basically arguing that A the world that you're living in is basically a glorified simulation which I right. think dealt with a lot of the anxiety of how the internet would sort of reshape modern life. Well, that's a common Philip, Philip K. Dick thematic, too. Yes. Um, but, and I, you know, I think by default, I think this is the best of the bunch. And again, I like The Matrix a lot. In fact, 
one of the reasons I like the Matrix Reload as much as I do is it does have some of the sort of the sadness and the well, what do my what do my choices mean if there are no consequences? Subtext that I like so much about Dark City. Yeah, uh, I don't want to skip too far ahead. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. And but yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's I saw it on the Sunday of opening weekend in a pretty empty theater. So it, it, it and yeah, when the Matrix came out a year later, I was like, you know, somewhat of a schmuck, you know, oh, you know, this, you know, this, this, you you all missed Dark City a year ago, but they're two very different films. I mean, at its core, the Matrix is the hero's journey. Joseph yes. Campbell's hero journey, beat for beat for beat, even more so than Star Wars. Oh yeah, um, easily yes. I mean, it's it's you know, this on the other hand is is telling a a also a very primal story. A man wakes up in a in a room with no memory and a dead body next to him, and uses that to you know start what's a very frankly bizarre story. Right. Some would, some would say this is the last Jedi to the Matrix's Force Awakens. <laughs> um, we should talk about this movie <laughs> that we're watching because we've got introduced to a lot of things. Um, I, I, we're watching the director's cut. I'm gonna I'm gonna get back to that more as we kind of get into the movie. But what I do, the, one of the big notable things right at the beginning is there's no voiceover at the beginning. Um, right. A one of the last minute changes that they made to Dark City was, hey, let's have Keith or Sutherland narrate a lot of spoilers, so people we're assuming are very dumb can at least have some kind of through line for this movie. Um, this director's cut fixes that by taking that out, and while I'll never quite have that experience of what it would be like to not know everything going in, I do like this film a lot. This director's cut is a superior version. Yes, um, it, it it feels like a more complete film as far as what what. Proyas is going for in making a movie like this. Um, the, that said, I was already in love with this movie before the director's cut, so it's not like it's you know, <laughs> I, I I can't I can't fathom watching the other version again. It's just this there there's a lot there's a lot of effort put in to kind of make this more of a singular experience that I appreciate. Something that just feels unique and different, but inspired by so many different things that we'll also get into. Um, <laughs> They're... Like the Adjustment Bureau. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, we're seeing a lot of things right now. Um, all of this imagery is so cool to me, it's hard to kind of describe what's going on. But you get all these miniatures, you get these great-looking, like, Nosferatu-like characters in these coats. Uh, we... Played by Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith, Bruce, Bruce Spence. Bruce Spence, the uh, gyro captain himself. Um, yeah. we, we got to Rufus Sewell, who we'll get back to, um, and now we, now we have, uh, Jennifer Connelly, uh, coming mm-hmm. out here as, seem, you know, a femme fatale type in this dark neo-noir, even though she's pretty much the nicest character in this movie. Um, I tell you, for Jennifer Connelly, you know, this is one of the, a movie too, like, I don't know if we've done any movies with Jennifer Connelly on the commentaries, uh, but she's an actress that always struck me as if she's in something, I should probably be interested. She's made a lot of like quirky career choice movies type things like she's i mean she started out in like argento movie and uh phenomena and then uh uh, then labyrinth of jim henson she's got this and then she was in um uh aronofsky's uh requiem for a dream (laughs) requiem for a dream like she's made like really interesting cool choices with where she's going I tend to refer to Connolly as a rock. You can throw her at something and she'll be solid in it. Like it just right. seems to seems to be pretty damn consistent every time she's in a movie. 
And there's yeah. it's almost 100% liable that if she's in a movie, it will be very dark and depressing. Yeah. <laughs> Without fail. Yeah, her and, like, Lily, uh, Lily Taylor. Like, even they seem something to be... <laughs> like, she's just, he's not just that into you, she's in the one depressing storyline. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this was actually, I don't want to say a comeback, but, you know, she, she got a flash-in-the-pan bit of attention for The Rocketeer, but that film didn't really break out. And then she kind of, you know, I mean, she was always steadily working, but it was sort of, you know, a bit part here, a small supporting role there, a token love interest there. And it was around this time, maybe just because she, you know, aged up past the starlet, you know, when she looked like an adult. And, you know, film this film sort of, you start, after this, you start seeing her in Working for a Dream. Uh, she wins an Oscar for A Beautiful, Beautiful Mind. Mind. Mm-hmm. Pollock, Hulk. Uh, Hulk, yeah. House of Sand and Fog was another big yeah. one for her, critically. Uh, she's Dark in my, Water. She's in Dark Water, my favorite J-horror remake. Great. <laughs> yep. That movie's awesome. Yep. Um, and even here, this was, you know, Kiefer Sutherland sort of at that weird stage where he certainly wasn't a draw anymore. But it was still interesting seeing him in a movie. Well, it was yeah. it was he was a character actor like that's what he yeah. dove depth in dove into and then he gets Jack Bauer and that changes him for for where we are now like he would play like weird weird roles I mean he was that he was that like child rapist in that Sally Field movie well it's weird like twenty four it changes Kiefer's like persona but every time mm-hmm. Kiefer's in a movie even during twenty four it's still weird I mean he's still like the sniper oh, in no. phone Scott, booth or do you remember the Sentinel. Well, yeah, like there's Scott this, and I uh, yeah, I know, every time yeah. he said a Jack Bauer line, like, yeah, no, there, your yeah. weapon! Yeah, there's a couple, like, generic ones in here or there, but he still has, some, like, what's that fucking other, that that serial killer movie with Ethan Hawke? Taking Lives. Oh, it, Taking Lives, yeah. Like, there's, oh, just, yeah. Like, there's, like, random stuff like that where he's still, like, if he's not in Jack Bauer mode, and yes, The Sentinel, that's, like, one of two examples, maybe, but, like, he's he's yeah. generally doing weird stuff still. Yeah. Um... But yes, before certainly during this time, it's very apparent that he's doing all kinds of weird. Like, like let me let me try this out. Let me see how this works. You know, and it's interesting for a for a film that I would argue had somewhat of a low profile heading into release. This is a pretty solid cast. Oh, it's a you great cast. Jennifer Connelly, Kiefer Sutherland. Obviously, Rufus Duvall is a relative no name at this point. At least the first time I'd ever heard of him. Um. And he went on to have a relatively decent character actor, you know, career as far as, um, you know, he was never a star, but he was always fun to see him pop up. Oh, yeah, Rufus Sewell's great. Like, I, I enjoy the idea of him being in a cast because I'm like, that just says yeah. quality to me. Generally, there's, you know, his the movies he's in are all over the map as far as quality, but but him being involved, I'm like, yes, I want, I, I'm more interested now because he's in it because he seems like such a, he's in that. Not specifically, but like that kind of like we have current stars like Adam Driver or Dane DeHaan, which are much younger. But they're like mm-hmm. they have this weird flavor to them where they're not the traditional type of leading star, yet they get leading roles in things. And like I find that to be so interesting. And that's what Rufus Sewell's in that kind of camp where it's like that's not a traditional looking kind of person. He has this kind of softer voice, this black hair, his eyes bug out. Like it's like, OK, let's see this guy. What's he going to do? And he, he fits. He especially fits in movies like this. Well, this is a fe- feature film debut of Melissa George too. Uh huh. So, yes. So, I mean, well, it's a lot of Australia. Time, but a lot she of launched. A... You keep going. Sorry. 
No, I mean, it's, I was finishing the word launched. Okay, well, yeah, so yeah. Well, there's a lot of Australians in this movie. You have her, you have uh, David Wenham has a small role in here. Uh, it's the same with, like, The Matrix, where it's like, well, they filmed in Australia. Might as well get an Australian cast. So you have a lot of Australians, like, popping up in here. Um, All pretending to be American uh, 40s stars. Because, you know, I just wouldn't buy this story if they were all with, you know, Australian accents. It would just no, change it, the it, whole it, thing. It I couldn't me. believe it. Yeah, throw me wouldn't off. be able to believe it, yeah. Throw, throw me off. Uh, and right away, you notice the entire world is very claustrophobic. Oh yeah. Even mm-hmm. the you know the interiors that theoretically have tall ceilings and you know there's still and obviously that's the camera work that's the camera placement, but you know it really already feels like even when he's outside, there's something interior about the locations. Not that it's a soundstage, although it probably is. But you know, it was something almost suffocating. Like which it's again, an enclosed makes, area. Like this city again, doesn't makes, connect. <laughs> which makes this a less than crowd pleasing theatrical experience. You know, as a as a you know a fan, because I think it's a very good movie. I think it's a lot of fun. It's certainly not a fun film to watch. Um, you know, it's it certainly it's not a swashbuckler, so to speak. I, um, I mean, I would argue it's. It, I mean, yes. I mean, in terms of kind of thematically what it's doing, but I mean. The fact that it is this kind of mystery that throws you into things, yeah. it does get, you know, there is a visceral quality to it. It's like, oh, this guy's, in a, you know, he has no idea what's going on and he's on the run. I, 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 I inherently want to follow this story. And I think there, yeah. there's there's a lot of, there's a lot in the score that really propels that too. That kind of gives you this sense of like, what is going on here? Like, I want mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not laughing at the time that he's having, but kind of hearing the kind of hard boiled dialogue, seeing creepy, weird stuff appear. It's in the same way of like a horror movie's fun where yeah. the horror movie, you're not inherently having fun with the characters. They're generally, if they, you know, certain types of horror movies, uh, but you want to be, just right there with them you, you feel and and that that is an enjoyable thing to be a part of um and it's got this right. i mean it, it's got an obvious uh noir aspect to what it looks like but it, it's almost as if they said okay we want it to look like a black and white film noir movie but it's in color and honest and you know like it's not like pretty sets or whatever it's grimy it's what it would really look like not like what a you know, movie production. Well, it's funny. Which... I grew up. I grew up watching a lot of Hitchcock with my mom, and mm-hmm. and I've seen a lot of other kind of obscure films before. I guess whatever the recommended age would be to interpret them properly. But like seeing this, and then like later on the Matrix, um, just it spoke to me right away. Seeing a movie like this, seeing these things, uh, and then like finally getting to see movies like M and other Fritz Lang work, mm-hmm. um, and later on when I had access to that kind of thing, it's like yeah, I can I get why I like this because it just yeah. like everything about this mood, this atmosphere, it just fits exactly what I like really love in movies. In addition to many other kinds of movies, but this certainly is like yeah. <laughs> I like all of this. This is I mean, so you have high it, level. Yeah, you have it all. I mean, even in like not weird, like like seven has this kind of aspect oh, yeah, to it, obviously. Sure. But um, yeah, it was like a, it was growing in the the night. Like Twelve Monkeys kind of has this uh-huh. look to it. Um, but they all, yeah, it was a popular look in the nineties. Well, yeah, and, like like uh, Gilliam in general has a kind of a thing. Like, yeah, I was talking about this on um, front of the show Zaki Hassan's podcast the other day. He, his co-host Brian saw Brazil for the first time. And Brazil's a movie that I, I only recently caught up with as far as in like the la- within the last ten years as opposed to grew up watching it. And when I did, I was like, 
well, of course I like this. I mean, it's just like yeah. this just exact. This fits exactly with things that I love. Of course, I love this movie. <laughs> Brazil, <laughs> Brazil. Anyway, here's two, if here's you kneel re- down and swipe, you turn electric. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> here's two reasonable people having a conversation with each other and being bemused by that fact. <laughs> William Hurt is great in this movie. He has such a a wonderful kind of uh, reaction to everything that's said to him and the way he presents things back to people has such a a love a kind of a, an a hard-boiled attitude to it mm-hmm. I, i'd love to like i'd love to see him in more movies like this or more things that play up his kind of flippant attitude towards serious situations uh, he, he can do that really well he's kind of an actor we got we we have plenty of him but we never have like too much of him well, I mean, he didn't, get, he didn't get to make that Lost in Space franchise out of the sequel. That's true. That, that, that would come, you know, a, a couple months later. The same studio. That New Line contract was working for him. <laughs> He's got this, that, and what? History of Violence. Ten years or seven there years There we go, yeah. <laughs> like... History of Violence day, day, or the uh, New Line Day player, William Hurt. William Hurt. <laughs> How old is William? 67. All right, he's getting up there. And word. He could have been a he could have been a decent Lex Luthor, looking at him. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd be yeah. he'd be, be a darker Lex Luthor. I could say. I yeah. Don't him, I don't see him having much fun. I don't see him having him Otis walking around with him. Like <laughs> he wouldn't tolerate that. <laughs> right. Um, he pisses oh, yeah. in the toilet. We've been mentioning other films of like contemporaries of this time, but um, Jean-Pierre Jeannette, obviously, yeah, like City of Lost Children. And mm-hmm. even Delgatessen. I mean, those are v- very similar as well as far as the grimy world that they're presenting. That kind of off-base. City of Lost Children in particular, because there's literally a kidnapping aspect going on there that fits the vibe of this kind of thing. You know, I wonder if, you know, I, I do find it interesting that a lot of these films, the whole, you know, your world isn't your own, it's all simulation, blah, blah, blah. They start out with a kind of a film noir, hard-boiled detective atmosphere as the starting ground. And I think there's something that allows you to sort of turn off your suspected disbelief because it's so rooted in established film tropes. And the idea that if some theoretical other being would create a simulation for us, they would probably make it somewhat like a fictional movie as opposed to real life. Hmm. Um. I do like the use of color in this film. It's one of those films that you think is very dark and, and gloomy and grayish, but there is a lot of color if you're actually looking at the screen. There's a lot of reds, a lot of purple. Well, it's, it's, um, it's such green. a green. It, yeah, yeah. It's such a big contrast to, you know, the majority of the film. And that's why, I mean, yeah. you're like, we're in Melissa George's apartment right now. And yes, there's a lot of red and she has blonde hair. Like it's really making a statement of like, this is an area that's supposed to stand out. And that's, it, it fits into the story of this film because it's very much the strangers making that happen. It's like everything yeah. that everything that they're concerned with are things that they've tuned to be this way for this night. So it's, it's just like, yeah, it's like putting a highlight on a map because I want to see how this works, which is exactly what they're doing. It's like their whole their whole mission statement is, is that whole thing. Here's our first action scene of the movie coming up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the movie has very little action in it. Oh, well, first real. <laughs> exactly. even then, I mean, there's. I mean, I'm just I'm trying to think of action scenes in this movie. It's like this little fight scene and like the end, and I guess like there's a whole rooftop chase sequence. It's pretty cool, actually. But yeah, it's... 
Now, this film came about at a time where, you know, CGI and and related advances in special effects technology were starting to make the impossible possible, to use a cliche, uh-huh. but it was still impressive to see, you know, really grand visual imagery in a movie. You know, you still could be impressed by the sheer con- the, the sheer existence of high quality special effects. Yeah, yeah, it's and especially you know you get movies like this where Alex Price is such a practically minded director, he knows what how to use effects sparingly. Uh, so you get these great miniature shots that convey exactly what you need to about the world, mm-hmm. and you can you know kind of match in the characters where you need to, and then the effects that they you you do get. Because it's so, it's a lot of besides like the end, which is a pretty heavy climax. I mean, a lot of it's pretty subtle stuff, uh, and it works really well. It works really well to the film's advantage because it is dark city, so you can kind of mask a lot of things. But it's also at that time, much like Verhoeven with Starship Troopers, which comes out, you know, a couple months before this, where the blending of practical and matte paintings and CG is at like kind of the height of these practical stuff before you're going to all CG. So it really looks great and it holds up really well too. Yeah. And I, I like that. Like when the guy fell off the building, it was still old school effects, but when uh, the stuff was crumbling, it was CG and it just, oh, yeah. I don't know, they melded together. Well, and this one, this movie, just the way it is, if you just saw some old silent movie kind of special effects technique used in this, it would fit mm-hmm. just with the story they've got and the, the presentation of how it all works and goes together. Like, I would buy, like, an old school. There isn't a lot of it. Like, in a lot of the miniature design, there's a lot of use of, like, very small cameras to get really close and make, you know, some of these things look as big as they do or what have you. Imagine, like, this scene right here with these all the strangers Mm -hmm. in this elaborately designed room and these costumes, probably a lot of little tricks and whatnot to make it seem bigger than it actually is. Yeah. That fit the kind of... You know, same thing as something like Metropolis, uh, which is very heavy, you know, a heavy inspiration for this film for obvious oh, yeah. reasons. This is the, I just this stuff is fascinating to me. Just watching this oh. movie, I'm like it's hard to talk. Like just I mean, the, the movie Richardson. itself. I mean, this is one of those. Like, of course, you know, the, the mystery goes well with sound, but I mean, it's just enough. I mean, you could mute this and enjoy it. Oh yeah, just how strong the visuals and just the physical storytelling is in it. Get these period cars here that are not specific enough to pinpoint what the hell's happening, but they're like, well, it's old. <laughs> I feel like this is a time, you know, back in the day when we just like accepted, like, okay, this is just some out of time, out of place thing. And then, but like today, we're like, when are they? What's with the cars? Why is it like that? You know, no, yeah, I'd, I'd, so, many, so many explained. Yeah, I'd hate the think pieces that come out of Dark City. <laughs> like, yeah, so, so many things, like, you know just have to have this you know explanation so we talked a little bit about rufus sewell and how he's basically come from nowhere to be in this movie um and yeah that's pretty much the case when you see this like who the hell is this guy (laughs) i mean unless you're in england and you know him from like some random things like rufus sewell's not doing much like he um but well, and he, we see we first see him. I mean, we don't know this guy from anything, and then we mm-hmm. first see him. He's possibly committed a murder, and so, so you can kind of believe that could go either way. Yeah, but it's also completely fitting of him being you know the person that's starring in this movie. He also doesn't know who he is. Like there's there's right. nothing. So you have such a great 
it's a great lead choice because he has he he has like a Peter Lorre type thing going on and it very much fits for a film like this but also because you're not recognizing him from anything else you can kind of go along with the ride as far as far as well, what is happening? What is going on here? Even if they have some of the details from stupid voiceover stuff, it's like, mm-hmm. well, I don't quite know where things are going. And in saying that, I should note Johnny Depp was at one point like, a, you know, a possibility for this film as the lead. Oh, um, JD, huh? Old, yeah, the, the Depper. <laughs> but, um, he is. Six, possibly seven dollars at the box office. <laughs> you know, pe- people are people are are wanting that that title of. Uh, a fantastic beast because he's his character's in the title but what about sherlock gnomes <laughs> is sherlock gnomes but yeah johnny johnny depp was attached for a what like he was reading for like there was a possibility um and then when the film was at fox for a while tom cruise was one that they were really going for they were like oh, tom cruise might have read the script for this like that was a big thing and i can't i can't imagine this i, I, I mean i guess there's a version of it, <laughs> but the putting Tom Cruise in place of Rufus Sewell for a movie like this just seems like, yeah, like, all right. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's like the Matrix very, transforms very... with Will Smith. I mean, it's just, you know. I think, you know, Tom Cruise would have been very good in this film. I just think you would never really be in a position of thinking, yeah, he could be the killer. But it just, yeah, it changes the, uh, it changes, what, I think it, it, it changes the, would have it's willing to do that back then. Yeah, no, I don't think I don't think he'd yeah. be unca- incapable as a performer, yeah. Johnny Depp either. Like yeah. they're they're of course yeah. they're, they're at that level for a reason. They're good actors, yeah. um, but the association that you get, yeah, um, with them inherently changes how you're supposed to interpret this film. Um, yeah, by having it's... by having you know a nobody essentially here, a, you know, with a bunch of great actors around him gives you gives it a whole different dynamic that you otherwise wouldn't have and the, i mean you can say the same about that we talked about this with the matrix i think too but yeah will smith there's this you know you get you get men in black essentially you get this kind of self-awareness that maybe makes it a bit certainly at that point in his career a bit you know off from what keanu reeves brings to it which is kind of this aloofness um that's played very differently well i think the other thing with will smith in that point in his career is he was close to the peak of his fame so you don't have the underdog thing that you've got with oh, yeah. Reeves who's been sort of in a post-speed slump yeah um, and uh... sorry I'm actually watching the movie I'm watching too because <laughs> what I like what I like about this is that it's I don't think there's a whole building here I think it's like one staircase and they're just shooting it over and over again but it looks really exciting um Also, the music, so I, the score is great here. I, the score is like, it has such a, it's weird. It's a weird score because it really, it really jumps up in ways that you, like, that doesn't, doesn't fit a movie like this, and yet here it is. Here's a fun car chase. It's not even a car chase, it's just one. It's just a taxi, but it's very low. It's very low tech. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very much. You know, let's, let's, let's shake the exterior of the cab around to make it look like they're driving. You know, I, I saw the, the obviously the theatrical cut in theaters, and even I, I, you know, and I haven't watched the theatrical cut in ages, but even with the opening narration, I always felt that it had enough mystery and things that were unexplained and things that needed to be explained to keep a certain amount of what's going on engagement yeah uh, yeah i don't disagree but obviously this version just drops you on your ass and that's 
preferable if you, if you think audiences will do that. Um, but if for no other reason than, you know, spoiler alert, you know, there's no hint whatsoever that they're all in a giant spaceship, um, which is an incredible reveal. It is. Um, it, it plays way better not having that bit because it just yeah. comes out of nowhere to grit and it's like, oh, this this is much broader than I thought it was as far as what we're yeah. doing here. You know, we mentioned Kiefer. We didn't mention that he looks like weird as fuck in this movie. <laughs> just the oh, way yeah. they've designed his. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, he does. Yeah. He, he's, just... he's all in. It's like, yeah, it's every breath, it's like he's. It's it's like his last one, and he has this limp, and his eyes messed up. Like it just has, you know, he really sank into this role like, for, for this movie. Well, I think at this point in his career, this is the kind of this is a kind of performance that he gives to show that he can do it. Um, you know, because it's so. I I would honestly, even though you know, obviously he's played villains, he's played characters before. I mean, it's such a. It's almost a comic book supervillainish type performance. Obviously, it's not that extreme, but there's a certain amount of, oh, this is very, he can do this now. So when the next role comes along, he might not have to fight for it. Um, like, like, right here, this, this pool stuff, right here, <laughs> just him staring mm-hmm. off. He has the part in his hair, and he's wearing, like, this old swims costume, so it's just, like, it's such a weird look for him. Especially, like, now, with, like, all the knowing that he's, you know, Jack Bauer and now currently president on Designated Survivor. <laughs> so it's, like, this is such a weird thing. Like, this is the kind of thing you can see, like, Philip Seymour Hoffman also doing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, we haven't even talked about um, Richard O'Brien as Mr. Hand, who's also terrific in this movie. Uh, the only stranger that has, like, more of a personality and is this weird kind of cat and mouse game that they're playing. Oh, uh, but Bruce Spence brings the teeth. Well, Bruce Spence always brings the teeth. I mean, that's for sure. That's why you get him. That's why you get him. Speaking of color, I mean, look at this pool. I love the contrast here. You have this guy cloaked in black walking around this very muted room and you have this bright chlorine pool in the middle with blonde-haired Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> it's some weird production design stuff here. I mean, Proyce yeah. is coming off like the Crow, which is miniature heavy already and has a distinct look to it. But I mean, you get these weird little instruments that look out like they're out of Del Toro's Kronos at that point or a Tim Burton movie. He's like, I like, you know, I like the crow, so I'm gonna make a a movie that takes place in like the next city over. That's what I'll do. <laughs> Hell's Den. Yeah. <laughs> Time to take her. So what what Proyas movie are we gonna do next? I Robot. I Robot. Yeah. <laughs> Mother damn spoon. Six years later. <laughs> Did you shoot at me with your eyes closed? You know, I'm a joke. I like iRobot. I, I like it too. I did too. I did too. I like his film. I, I understand the basics. I think I like iRobot because I like this movie so much. Where I was like, I'm yeah. de- I need to like this movie because it's Will Smith, <laughs> who at that time, like, Will Smith can't do wrong except for Men in Black 2. And. <laughs> and Alex is like Alex Proyce like this guy needs a win, and so I'm like yes, put them together, give me this movie. But that's like I mean we could get to that in a different part of the, a different time when we actually do that commentary. But that's the point where like 
Will Smith, like, because I think iRobot's one of his best, like, film performances. I think he's very good as yeah. an actor in that movie, balancing both the kind of movie star thing with him trying to challenge himself, since he's mm-hmm. playing, since he's playing, you know, a racist in that movie, essentially. Um, much better than Bright. Um, <laughs> um, well, I think, you know, quite frankly, you know, I talk a lot about how, you know, from you know, that 2002 to 2008 period, how he was, you know, a huge <coughs> movie star, he was very very good in those movies. He, yes. Whether you like the films or not, you know, he is very good in Hancock. He yes. is, very, you know, he's all by himself and I am legend for goodness sakes. Um, he's terrible in Shark Tale, but I'm not going to hold that against him. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it, it, Pursuit of Happiness. Uh, there's, he's great. Yeah, he's yeah, really, yeah. he's legit good in these movies. Yes. Ali, um, well, even a Hitch. Hitch is good. Hitch is solid. Hitch is a fun yeah. movie. Um. Anyway, Dark City. Uh, <laughs> we're looking at we're looking at the we're looking at all the spirals here. A lot of spiral imagery on this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, very. Cool we got stuff. the guy who knows what's going on, mm-hmm. but, doesn't, but he seems but, crazy. He knows what's going on, but doesn't know what's going on. I love yeah. that he he has enough theories to get <clears throat> the basics, but not enough to really go anywhere with it, which has to be frustrating. Like, he's one of those. He's one of those classic guys that ran out of notebook paper and didn't have time to go by. <laughs> but he never and ran he, out of chalk. And you know, if you're watching the director's cut, and theoretically you haven't seen it some before, this is you know that's the most exposition you've gotten thus far. Yeah. yeah. You're you know, you don't know any more than William Hurt does at the end of that scene. Um. Now the director's cut didn't come till later, right? Because yeah, like on VHS, yeah, tra- I remember it had the. Uh... Yeah, it didn't. It didn't come till the Blu-ray came out. Blu-ray, okay. Because uh, yeah, the DVD was one of those uh, old uh, cardboard clip shot yeah. boxes. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah. They're not clamped, uh, yeah. It, it, in in um, 2008, it's 10th anniversary. Actually. 10th anniversary. Oh. So we are oh, 10 years ago. Yeah, this and for is... their 20th anniversary, they got our commentary. Yeah, exactly. Even better. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. I have to label it now. Rod Draper would have joined us, but he's dead. Yeah. 20th anniversary? <laughs> I booked him. I booked him back then, too. I was like, Ebers, Ebs, guess what? <laughs> we, got a, we got a plan. Uh, but yeah. RIP. Uh, but no, let's talk about that a bit. Because uh, despite this movie, fl- we should get, we'll talk about the box office, too. But despite this movie, you know, flopping, which it did, I mean, <laughs> uh, it made money, but not, you know, not money. Um, yeah. This is still at a point where DVDs are like, we can load this thing up with extras, and this this was this was I believe the second movie I had on DVD, no the third. It's the third DVD I ever owned because I had The Matrix and I had Fight Club, uh, so then I had this movie. And at this point, New Line's like, who cares if our movies flop? We can load up the DVDs, and they did. They have like a, they had the commentaries, they had some making of stuff, and they had the um, like mm-hmm. the Easter egg thing with Shell Beach where you like kind of try to navigate around it to find this hidden thing about shell beach that was loads of no fun <laughs> but it's still like i like the i i like yeah, the yeah. Idea, i like the idea that like they went all in on these like, they went on all in on these movies regardless of how good the movie did at the box office or like we we could make the money on dvd by just really shelling out for the extras new line was way ahead of the game on that scale yeah they got the new line platinum oh. series they had yeah. all that yeah going. yeah and every citizen on earth eventually owned lost in space yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> I never and did. That was, <laughs> That's not well, one that well. I didn't go for it. I did, they didn't suck <laughs> me in with that one. Nope. <laughs> um, you get your uh, five free DVDs when you bought yours. That that wasn't one of them that I got. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't get one of those. I was before they offered that when I had my DVD player. Uh, you were an early adopter. Yeah, mine was my first DVD. Like most people, was The Matrix, and then uh, Clint Eastwood's True Crime. Oh, perfect. And uh, I like Austin, True Crime. Austin That's... Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. Those are my first. True Crime. Wait, which the was Austin True Powers it... franchise was loaded with special features. Oh yeah, there. Yeah. I mean, there was almost a whole movie's worth of <laughs> different yeah. scenes. Uh, no, True Crime was the one with Isaiah Washington. Isaiah Washington. It's got, okay. It's got Speed Zoo, where he's like trying to, you know, turn this guy innocent and yeah, stop and the death penalty in a day. And, yeah, and it's got Dennis Leary and Michael Jeter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Catherine I, McCormick. I get because the, t- the titles are so generic. I get that one confused with Absolute Power with Gene Absolute Hackman. Power. It's, like around, and... it's like around the same time, like those two movies. So I was like, okay. But I like I like True Crime. True that Crime one, is a good movie. It's, yeah, a, it's, a, it. it's a neat one. It's a neat like B movie for for Eastwood. Like I gotta save I gotta save this guy. Yeah, the equivalent of uh, they all look alike, don't they? The movie. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> um. <laughs> now my first my DVD player came with Batman and Robin. Believe it or not. Oh. Okay. Oh. Wow, and, and not with the uh, Joe, Joe Schumacher uh, No, not the apology. Commentary. That was no. a few years later. Um, they were all bare bones. Um, yeah. And now, uh, oh, where are we? About 39 minutes or so? Yeah. We're about to get our first tuning sequence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which are fascinating uh, to watch. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, this is where all the catering budget went. <laughs> 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 no, but talking about the so the, yeah the Blu-ray comes out ten years later and has this extended cut on the like the director's cut on it where they polish up some yeah. of the effects and add fifteen minutes of footage, um, and it's great it's great that again a movie like this that you know bombed and has like a cult following mainly because Ebert just like sponsors a festival to make yeah. to make sure it keeps getting like recognized year after year that New Line's like all right. Let's let's not only release the Blu-ray. Let's make a whole new. Let's give the budget to to Proyas to make a whole new cut of this movie, and it's like, well, that's wonderful. It's wonderful that kind of thing happened. Well, I mean, with well, that films, was... people will collect and buy them through formats, through different versions. You know, more often than like some kind of better, like safer, more money-making general hit film. You know, like if, if it has a cult following of... video. And... Well, that was the beauty of the DVD is it turned yeah. post theatrical into a buyer's market and they yeah. were cheap enough where they could be impulse buys and there was a market for people who would buy movies that either they hadn't seen or they maybe saw once and, you know, it, just, it wasn't that big of a deal to buy a movie, even one that you didn't love. And, you know, that's even aside from the film nerds like us that collected them like candy. Um so you had, you know, there was an incentive to, uh, you know, make these kind of movies. And even if they flopped in theaters or underperformed in theaters, there was at least a half a decent chance that we would recruit some of that after the fact. And once the DVD market collapsed and everybody moved to streaming, that safety net went away, which is one of the big reasons why you don't get movies like this anymore. Well, they're trying to pull a lure now with the streaming where they're they're have exclusive bonus features and and the bonus features are coming with the releases like i th- I know movie any movies anywhere 
post the bonus, same bonus features on your disc stuff. But you know, the moment streaming were to like capitalize and like, okay, we're done physical media, those would go away. Those are just to yeah. lure the last people. Are like, oh well, they got my bonus features, so that's it. Yeah, but those would go away instantly if they're like, all right, Blu-ray's done, DVD's done, 4K's done, it's all streaming now. Uh, they would they would do away with those. I, I don't want to yeah. look forward to that because I I mean, I, I, like, I, I I like my commentaries. I like getting those. Right. Like, and like I and listen, the, a I lot of the commentaries them. aren't porting to that. So I, which is weird because it's just an audio channel. That seems like the easiest yeah. thing to do. You port it over Spanish. <laughs> why not, and in German? Why not? Well, like you know, I watched audio um, tracks. I watched Kong Skull Island. I had to watch it streaming because there's an exclusive commentary that has the director yeah. and the cast. And the same with Jackie. Uh, Jackie has a, por- a commentary with um, the direct with um, the director and Natalie Portman that's only available mm-hmm. on iTunes. It's like, well, why? <laughs> this is just annoying. Like this is an audio track. Right. Uh, well, and with streaming, like with your library, it's like, well, some of them will show up here, some of them will show up there, you know, because different, you know, ones have like like movies anywhere doesn't have Paramount or Lionsgate movies, so you can't watch them there, but you can watch them on Vudu. It's it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a mess, but um, but I don't think blu-ray dvd ever truly goes away it just becomes more of the boutique label motif yeah and like like kind of i'd like to compare the future of it i think it would look like what vinyl looks like today um for like you know less less available um a lot more put into them a little bit higher price tag but it becomes just like for the collectors yeah so let's uh let's talk about the tuning that's happening right now because of this whole sequence where new buildings are being formed people are being Mm -hmm. changed costumes are being changed uh this is great because it's you're getting again you're getting more information about well how does this world function but it's so bizarre and yeah and getting that shot of ian richardson where it goes into his head and you're like like what's happening what are these things like these people there's a thing inside of what's like it's just so out there but it's so understandable and it's the kind Mm -hmm. of thing where studios have such a hard time understanding that people can understand this but Proyas is such a good director where it's like yeah it's bizarre but there's you can't get I, I you have to be like closing your eyes to not get what's happening it's like, so <laughs> simple yes, like it it, you know it could have been this high tech thing though but they're just picking people up walking them putting a shot in like it's yeah. so simple and it's for a movie like this especially it's pretty quick like the pacing the editing is so sharp in uh-huh. this thing it works function I can see why a movie like Annihilation, which I mentioned already, that's coming out this week to date this podcast, it's a slower burn of a movie. I can see where the trepidation is, uh, but I wouldn't trust an audience not to get what the what's going on in that movie necessarily. Uh, I think audiences are smart if you give them a chance, and this movie, it so plays to that. Proyas gets that. Proyas like in the in, even in the writing. Um, and I don't want to give too much credit to David S. Gray if I don't have to, but he had two other writers helping. Him, so it's, um, it's well, I, I don't think the problem, you know, in the studios, whatever. I don't think the problem with modern audiences today is that they they aren't smart. It's that like a lot of them think of, think going to a movie thinking they can outsmart it before even just letting the movie do its thing. Like that's, that's certainly a, that's a lot of that's that's like that's like the the kind of online audience, the internet audience. Yeah, yeah, but that's experience. good. It's a portion, um, but uh, yeah, it's. They have this simple. I mean, the world. They're. I mean, the the detail of the world they live in is more complex than the the actual plot device of what they're doing. For sure, and I think it's also a matter of because the movie looks like this and doesn't look you know, you know super colorful and bright all the time. You're gonna like the there's a the automatic fear to it. But if you put this like random weird plot to like a sunny movie, 
Yeah. <laughs> you, I, I don't think there'd be that many questions going against it. Yeah, like, because it's in this world, you're just like, okay, yeah, this is a thing that could happen there. I, yeah, I, inher- yeah I, I inherently think I have to be a thinker to really get this, even though it's like, no, it's just, it's very, mm-hmm. it's very easy. It's, and what, what, what I love that's haunting is when he runs into the, what is it, the hotel clerk uh-huh. at the newspaper stand, and, it, mm-hmm. and it's, it's just like this dynamic that's, like... He is now completely that person, but he's also still that guy. It's it's weird how they pull it off. It's something really complex, but really simple that it just seamless in this. this must I don't... Be, it must be fun for an actor to like right. kind, of, kind of be involved in this kind of thing. It's like okay, I get it. So I'm doing. But this, he's but that he's this. like that guy, but he's also emitting the previous person. And I don't mean that guy is in like he's physically that guy. I meant like he is that guy, but he's also emitting the previous person there like it's mm-hmm. it's really it's really interesting so i'll, I'll note because i mentioned goyer a couple times now so the movie this is a this is from proyas it's like his story it's his concept which mainly revolved around the guy that we were talking about who understands what's going on but doesn't quite that was kind of his thing that he was first going off of uh, mm-hmm. Lem, Do- Lem Dobbs comes on to kind of help flesh out the screenplay. Lem Dobbs, who would go on to write, he already wrote Kafka for Soderbergh. He'd go on to write The Limey and uh, Haywire, among other things, for, uh, for with Soderbergh. Um, and they're kind of shaping the story. And then David S. Goyer gets involved when it's at, when it's at Fox to quote, gotta include that ass to yes, David S. Goyer to make it quote less weird. That was, that was the idea of bringing Goyer on. Um, and to its credit. I mean, I, you know, it's not like I can point out who wrote what, how things happen. It's a collaborative process. But this is among the better of Goyer's films, <laughs> um, along with, you know, the, right. Nolan, the Nolan stuff, which I still think is a lot of Nolan and maybe some it's up there. It's up there with uh, Kickboxer 2 and Dollman vs. Devonic Toys. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Puppet Masters. Um, which, weird, weird enough, did, did Proyas produce Crow City of Angels? He, yes. Is uh, that where they would have met? Yes, that's that's where that's where he that that was okay. on, on New Line. He wrote, uh, or he's Mir- that's Miramax, I guess. But yeah, he was okay. look, yeah because this movie was with Disney for a while too, and then it went to Fox before it went to New Line. But yeah, but Gloria got involved in that area, and yes, Crow City of Angels was a part of it because of that kind of world and what have you. Gotcha. Spirals. Um... But yeah, so the three of them combined. Led to this. <laughs> they led to this movie. Um, I I talk about Goyer because his dialogue tends to stand out in movies. It tends to be expositional and performed wonkily. I don't know why. I don't know mm-hmm. how it's hard for actors to grasp some of this dialogue, but it works here, I guess, because of the hard-boiled nature. So it's such a stylized way of speaking. Right. Um, and I mean, combined with the fact that he's, you know, working with two other writers on the film, but it just nothing feels out of place in how people are talking. Nothing feels like it's being heavy handed to you. Yeah, we are like, <clears throat> but we're also before. I, I don't know, people like dialogue starts changing because of the that sort of like a Tarantino, Kevin Smith, uh, Whedon type effect where that was just starting to incorporate more i don't know not that all things were stilted or anything like a goyer but might have been more normal at the time i mean that comes with you know like the times i mean you look at it yeah 
a movie coming out of the you know 30s 40s it's acted and performed and spoken differently than a movie that comes out even in the right 50s 60s but i hear what you're saying i mean yeah and you get a lot of younger filmmakers that grew up on other filmmakers that you know certainly mm-hmm. have an influence and a way of speaking or way of writing that reflects that I mean, maybe, I mean, he started writing for Van Damme, so maybe he just pictured everybody. <laughs> so this is Ebert's favorite film of the year, let alone one of his favorite movies, like, in general. Like, he loved this thing. Like, I, I remember yeah. watching the Siskel and Ebert show, and, like, he just, nothing but praise for this movie. All, <laughs> brought it up as much as he could. Um. Yeah, I mean, he gave it a four-star review, he coined it as the best film of 98 and he wrote several essays you know over the you know over its uh and he was you know he liked knowing he's the only person who liked knowing more than me four stars like for knowing. knowing he loved yeah it. i yeah, was excited I, like it, I was excited for knowing too i was disappointed i i think i love the end of knowing the, the oh, end yeah, just the goes act is amazing. the end goes crazy i was like wow yeah. this is not where i expected this movie to go and i'm all yeah. about it um um, I haven't seen Knowing recently enough to have specific criticisms of why I didn't like it, but it was like, okay. <laughs> um, no, and this, you know, the film, and again, I can only speak to my own experience, but I, you know, certainly showed it to a few friends here and there over the years. You know, this is something neat. You, I think you'll enjoy this, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yeah, by the time the 10th anniversary rolled around, I think it was, it was one of those situations where, Saying that you've seen it and you liked it and it's as good as The Matrix in its own way was no longer a particularly rebellious act. You know, it was sort of con- accepted its conventional wisdom. Uh-huh. Yes, the film flopped, you know, whatever, but, but it's still pretty terrific and everybody everybody who sees it likes it. Hmm. Um, and, you know, by that time, you know, Poyas had made, you know, iRobot. He had made, he was about to make Knowing. Um, so, you know, he had a certain reputation as a, visually interesting director um, who often went somewhat, you know, off the beaten path. I would say iRobot probably the most conventional picture. But easily, pulled. easily, yes. Um, but that, I mean, that's where you have Will Smith, who no doubt contributes a lot of, you know, his own... His brand comes into play when you put him into a movie. Especially a movie like that, that's having him be very much his kind of persona, although adjusted to fit the kind of drama going on in that film. Um, yeah, plot, plot wise, it's you know, it's pretty straightforward what it's doing. And what I like about this film is that it all makes sense. You know, you everything that happens, even the fantastical stuff, makes logical A to B to C sense, both in terms of plot and in terms of character development. It doesn't feel like there's much cheating. It doesn't feel like there's much spectacle for the sake of spectacle. Everything feels earned. Oh yeah, um, that's. That that's why it's hard for me to hard for me to see an audience member not understanding this movie because by the end of it you're you can you can even if you can't like explain for sure like how does tuning work or what have you 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 get the journey the journey makes sense as far as going from guy that knows nothing to guy that knows all and all these people that he interacted with to get to that point like it, it has a internal logic that is entirely functional like you said. I, mean, I have to wonder, and you know, obviously this movie is twenty years old. You know, how much of the whole this movie was hard to understand, or cool shot, you right need the here. ending is 
Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Trailer <laughs> shot. Um, how much of that is general audiences versus the film nerd bubble that wants to sort of create controversy where none exists? And obviously that's much more now with the whole, you know, the ending of Rogue One explained. The credit cookies of Ben Pather explained. Well, that, yeah, that's easily, uh, that's easily applies to now, but opposed to then. But back then, then it, I mean, it's more studios. I question, it's, it's nervousness do you know anyone that was confused by Mission Impossible? Do I personally know anyone that was confused by Mission yeah. Impossible? I could pr- imagine at the time, yes, because that was the running yeah. joke about the film. Uh, but, but I mean, you I, but, know anyone that was. No, I don't specifically know someone that's yeah. That, but it's more, it's more of like, it's the common way of, of, of talking about that film as opposed to yeah. someone exactly saying, I don't know how this movie works. Like, I don't get yeah. it. Um, I, 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 I remember, you know, I was, I was 16 years old and that movie came out. And it was like, for me, at least, it was a weird situation where it was like the narrative came about and then everyone sort of jumped in to endorse the narrative without anyone saying, well, did anyone act, were, were general audience is actually confused or is it just a way to create why is Mission Impossible so confusing? Here are eight questions you might have asked. Oh, jeez. Uh, it's too bad there weren't five now, sequels to prove how unpopular it was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, that said, now, the, set, the second one is very dumb on purpose, so... Oh, yeah, yeah. It's very handled. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is fine. I think it works for that picture. Um, yeah, we have all commentary going over that. You can look into that uh, one. Uh, uh, <laughs> Um, and now if I recall the entire subplot with her, with her kid is cut from the theatrical cut. Um, yes, it is. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that, we don't was one of the, that was one of the big changes. Yeah. Because it makes it much, it makes it much yeah. harsher by, by yeah, comparison. It's a darker picture. <laughs> yes. Um, That's budget right there, by the way. You can't, I mean, yeah. it can't be easy to, like, for a movie like this to have a subway system involved. We're doing it one time, guys. Yeah, everybody get, get it right. <laughs> <laughs> I love the signs in this movie. There's a lot of, like, signs that have the kind of old-style font in them. And like they just evoke a certain time period. It's it's there's a lot of just really clever stuff where you're not even paying attention to it necessarily, but if you look at it, it's like there's so much effort that went to both the the weird designs of instruments and what have you, as well as the kind of nostalgia, you know, retro looking areas of the city that aren't just in architecture, but also in you know billboards and what have you. This was a twenty-seven million dollar picture, and it made twenty-seven million dollars. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, the international audience was also not ready for Dark City. <laughs> uh, that said, when they saw, I mean, I mentioned seeing this trailer of Mortal Kombat, it looked like a horror movie. Like that was kind of the yeah. impression that you. I mean, look at look at the imagery here. <laughs> it's pretty obvious that it looks like a horror movie. Um, but that's, I, I'd imagine that there's probably some clever people that can sell this today. Um, but at that time, it's like, yeah, how do you kind of, I guess, market something like this with these people in it, this mood, this atmosphere? I'm sure it can be done. It just wasn't necessarily done all that well, given the response. Um, Review, reviews are, what, like mixed positive overall yes. when it came out? Besides Ebert, you had, you know, it was kind of like, yeah, it's a good looking movie. <laughs> um. 
sorry, I'm enjoying Jennifer Connelly's performance here. She generally elevates pretty much any movie she's in by default. Well, again, O'Brien's great too here. Just this like little monologue he's giving about the whole thing, about living and experiencing life for the first time. Like it's fascinating to see these strangers and seeing one of them who has like he's imbued with sudden power and how that's counteracting with like, this kind of way of living, which is to just move, you know, be a be a puppeteer. That's what I brought Goyer on. Yeah. King, King of the Puppet Masters. And, well, they were like, hey, we want Kiefer. He's not sure about this. And this Goyer guy wrote a movie for his dad. So. <laughs> <laughs> Good old Donnie Sutherland. Which was the, uh, actually, that was the other piece of the double feature disc when we did Dark City. Of, cor- of course. It or was. not Dark City, Deep Rising. Deep Rising, yeah. Uh, so yeah, we talked about it. This movie, twenty-seven million budget, twenty-seven million box office. It opened number four at the box office on February twenty-seven. Titanic, of course, being the winner because that's our theme here. So you should know that already. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know what else opened on the same day as this movie? Mm-hmm. Krippendorf's Tribe with Richard Dreyfuss. Oh yeah, that was my second guess. So <laughs> um, kissing a fool with kissing a David Schwimmer and Jason Lee and Bonnie Hunt. Yeah, kiss and fool, Jason Lee. Uh, those uh, Schwimmer romantic comedies <laughs> we all loved. It was no... Uh, Every uh, one of those friends are going to be somebody. It's no pallbearer. Oh. Uh, <laughs> this, this year was a real test for the friends, actually. I think, what, because uh, what Matt LeBlanc has lost in space. And does uh, he have that monkey movie, too, this year? Ed's no Ed's ninety six I think isn't it? Oh okay. Um, what was Matthew Perry trying at? <laughs> uh, no Perry has um. That's not my head. Wonder is that later? No, Fool, no Fools Rush In is like two years ago, and then Three to Tango is a year later with Nev Campbell and not uh, Dylan McDermott. Um, Kudrow has um. Romeo and Michelle. Romeo and Michelle, the, mm-hmm. the previous year, early '97. Yeah, because it's the it's the weekend after Gross Point Blank, <laughs> so it's like reunions were big. Um, and uh, what's it? Jen- Jennifer Aniston keeps having things. It's like oh, what object of my affection might be this year. Or, yeah. Okay. Or, it was. Yeah. Picture, and Picture Perfect is somewhere picture around perfect. there too. Yeah. And Courtney Cox had just had Scream too. Courtney Cox has all the screen. She's she's doing the best of the bunch here. <laughs> she's in <the> Scream <laughs> movies. <laughs> She is a franchise. None of the others have a franchise. Oh, back to box up. Scott, like, I know we have to, we say nowadays, like, it's, uh, you got to make three times your budget back to really make something at the bot. Was that true back then? Because, I mean, marketing for movies is, I don't know, it seems much back, more now than it used to then be. then it was closer to double your budget. Yeah. Yeah. With, again, having said that, there was also much more of a, I don't want to say guarantee, but likelihood that you would have a decent post theatrical life. You had price to buy DVD, you had DVD rentals, you had mm-hmm. basic cable, you know, premium cable sales, basic cable airings, network airings. You know, there was a certain, you know, you had all these steps in the equation that all, you know, you had an audience. There were people that still would watch a movie for the first time when it showed up on HBO. 
or for mm-hmm. the first time when it premiered on, you know, USA. Um, that's not quite how it is anymore. Yeah. Um, a... Well, back then, movies were cropped and we accepted it. Now they still crop them, and I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> it is, uh, it's, it's very odd uh, what HBO specifically, I can understand airplanes, I guess, but it's like, why does HBO need to, whatever. Um. I have a I have a different question in the same vein. When did when did films when did films start being ashamed of their budgets? Waterworld. Is that what that was? That was the first was like that. public one. The Masters of the Universe went mm-hmm. crazy well, back then. It was only like seventeen million. Yeah, but like it, it used just, to. Uh, it was certainly it a, it, it used to be they a point, at, it used to be a point yeah. of pride. I would say. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's just like... James Cameron was doing it. <laughs> um, well, even yeah. that, you know, with Titanic, you know, up until people started seeing it, they're like, uh-oh, yeah, it's nobody's going to pull this off. And then, you know, to be yeah. fair, the critics said, holy crap, this movie's amazing. It's going to be huge. And then the audience said, you're right, I'm going to see it again tomorrow. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, of course, you went through the same thing with Avatar. until You know, and to be fair, until the, when the critics saw it, they were like, yeah, never mind. He's gonna be okay. <laughs> um, um, I mean, I you know, I I didn't see the first Avatar screening. I saw the second one, and yeah, I, I like yeah, this is gonna be huge. No, I wasn't gonna say biggest film of all time huge, but yeah, this is gonna this is a very very good movie that people are going to enjoy watching on a big screen. Retroactively, people say it's not though. We've changed <laughs> oh. the dialogue. It's apparently terrible now. They're you wrong. Didn't, you didn't. Me. You didn't enjoy it back then. There's no way. It magically uh, made money. Yes, it magically made two point seven billion dollars worldwide. There, it was. It was. Right. Pa- yep. It was paid audience members. Yep. <laughs> yep. That's pretty much. Yeah. Anyway, Dark City, fourth place in the box office, opens to five point five million dollars. Not high. Not, no. not a big number. Titanic makes twenty million by comparison this weekend, <laughs> like in its eleventh week of release. Yeah, it's, a, yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous how much I'll money this showman. It's ridiculous how much money this movie's making. Um, Good Goodwill Hunting is in third place in its thirteenth week, um, scraping by. Wedding have we gotten? Like, have we gotten to the the man with the iron mask tie yet? That's we're next, getting there. We're getting there. That's next month, and I'm debating what commentary we do next month. But um, well, you have oh. Marshall's. U.S. Marshals was early March, and that was the first movie to top Titanic just for a single day. Yeah. If that means anything to you. Gotcha. Because you had Man in the Iron Mask, your U.S. Marshals and Man in the Iron Mask, and the Grease re-release of all things that almost won. You know, they topped Friday but lost the weekend. Yeah, we've talked about this already. Man in the Iron Mask um, is like point three hundred. It's like three hundred thousand dollars away from dethroning Titanic, but doesn't quite get there. <laughs> like it's it's insane. <laughs> this works. Um, but yeah, right now, well, this is a more of an off-air conversation. But we we have to figure out what we want to talk about <laughs> for March because I don't quite don't quite know. Um, Man, in the Iron Mask and U.S. Marshals. I guess they both have interesting merits to go over. They're both long, though, also. <laughs> like, yeah. Long and aware like, I don't want to watch all 130 minutes of U.S. Marshals and try to talk over it. So we'll Wait, see. we weren't going to get lost in space next month? That's in April, dude. April. Oh, that's April. in April. Oh, that's, geez. That's Gosh. the that dethrones it. <sighs> and you've got Netflix show coming, too, which I probably won't watch unless it's excellent. Yeah, really. <laughs> um, 
But maybe uh, maybe Lebowski. Maybe we'll find a way to talk about all that. It's hard to talk about a comedy, but that might actually work. So we'll see. We'll, t- we'll talk about so, this. So we have another month before I get to talk about how I was mad at my parents because we had to go see Lost in Space and I wanted to see Mercury Rising. Gotcha. You're the one. I the like one. Mercury Rising. <laughs> it's a new Bruce Willis movie before I was, he was lazy. I was in that zone with Willis at that point. Where like, yeah. this, this guy is great. <laughs> Him and Alec Baldwin and Mike O'Hughes. Come on. Yeah, Mike O'Hughes in here. He's doing his thing. He's like, we need a kid to be strange and maybe have some sort of autism. Like, oh, it's, it's him. Let's do That's all he does. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> I like all these scenes with what is it, Uncle Carl? Yes. Yeah. There's a there's a nice um still alive, he's eighty eight. Um there's a just kind of this this weird familiarity that he seems to have with his with Rufus Sewell, but like can't quite place things. Like he just he fits he exactly fits the tone as all these other characters, but there it's a nice like, hey, let's stop running for a minute and try to get a little personal and he he just does a good job with all this stuff. And I like these little odd touches too. You have like, mm-hmm. a, here's an old childhood book. It's blank. <laughs> it's like God. You had no childhood. I, I can't. I can't figure out any of these clues here. I could just watch like countless scenes of those dudes stand. <laughs> they just start dancing. Well, like I'm sure. I, I, I'm sure. Yeah, on like tuning Wednesdays, there's a whole dance period that they <laughs> tuning Wednesdays. That's what they call it. Thursday salad bar. (laughs) (laughs) Because we're healthy. Some of my favorite lines in UHF, like, be sure to check out our new salad bar. Or the mortuary place. I love that. I like that they fly. Like, <laughs> I'm just gonna float out of here. Like they fly, and it's such a like they're not flying because it's fun or anything. It's just flying because it's practical. So they just stand while they're flying. Well, yeah, they don't make any motion. They just yeah. float in standing. Like most people would like make some sort of obviousness that I'm doing this. Uh-huh. No, they just lift off the same they were when they were sitting down. To be fair, it would be really funny to try to do Superman poses. Oh yeah, it's, I, it, I fully embrace it, <laughs> but I like what they do. It's almost like this you know, kid funny. is so creepy. Oh my god, oh. <laughs> the fact they got a little stranger kid. <laughs> I love I'm... it for, for no reason other than it's scary. Yes. Why not? Yeah, there's no like. Well, I, I mean, I guess, I guess you could argue that I think what the bodies that they inhabit are just like the bodies of the dead yeah. or whatever. But yeah, you have to have one kid one, so it's like oh, it's the creepiest one. It's got jagged teeth. I, I doubt this was the case, but uh, William, it's funny because the way these guys move and move and such, uh, or lack of movement, uh, movement as we we talked, uh, William hurts like really into this like kind of uh, in real life is into this like super I forget what the practice is. It's this meditation where you practice on trying to expend the least amount of energy from yourself through your daily life and routine or something. And like I had a friend who was starting to get into it at one point and he had these like videos from William Hurt talking about breathings and and mo- like moving your arm to grab something and trying to be as gentle as possible 
I'm like, I wonder if he, like, you know, sort of gave his advice on the set with these guys I'm curious and how they and, moved. Like, I'm curious if he and Jeff Bridges hang out and just do yoga together. It wouldn't surprise. Wouldn't be surprising. <laughs> Mr. Murdoch. <laughs> MacGyver! <laughs> I, I did, in fact, check out the episode of the... Uh, New one with Michael DeBar's back. Uh, oh, uh, it was oh he came back on that. Was he Murdoch? He was. He was the. There's a new Murdoch, and that oh. he and the old Michael DeBar's played a character that was his mentor that was trying to kill him. Oh, okay. um, and the guy that plays Murdoch is he was the creepy mental patient in The Dark Knight. Oh, all right, all right. Uh, and he's actually pretty cool as Murdoch. You know, it's it's. I would have loved it when I was twelve. Um, I mean, I'm not gonna watch this. Probably watch the show ever again, but it was fun. I got offered um, like the the season on like I think it was just DVD. I don't even think it was Blu-ray. I was like, yeah, pass. Um, they really do disperse exposition at a very almost leisurely pace. Um, and it's very. You know, it's, it's it's very building blocky, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we just learned quite a bit, but we still don't know much, if that makes sense. Um, <laughs> this stuff, right? The kid's, like, dragging the knife on the wall. <laughs> it's so oh, creepy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a new line trait. They do it with Freddy all the time, man. <laughs> <laughs> This is back when New Line was doing stuff like this and the Frighteners and Oh yeah. Oh the Frighteners was Universal. Well the Frighteners was Universal? Yeah. Oh, was universal. Yeah. Okay, oh, it confused me because Jackson was just like always hanging in those New Line offices and finally got to do something with uh Before Lord, the rings. Lord of the Rings. <laughs> but now he's, he's hanging like a... there to get his money. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh... I mean, yeah, this this was you know, as much as people like to knock the '90s, no, it wasn't the '70s. Blah blah blah. People do that. To me, this was a time when there was room for everything. In my opinion, you had mm-hmm. the tentpoles, you had the art house reemergence, you know, the, the, the post Soderbergh era, if you want to call it that. Yeah. You know, you know Weinstein, you know, whatever. Um, Linklater. Yeah, Linklater, and then you had. You know, a lot of genre films that happen to star not white guys because with a reasonable budget, you could make money doing that because you had a viable post-theatrical. And so you could take chances on original films. You know, 20 years ago, a movie like this, it being weird and original was almost a selling point. You you compare how... Something like you know the Fifth Element was received versus Valerian, and it's it's you know twenty years ago, you know the idea that the Fifth Element was new and weird and unlike anything you've ever seen before that was its big selling point, along with being you know a Bruce Willis action adventure film. Um, but you know twenty years later, something like Valerian, which is based on a comic book for goodness sakes, is still seen as a giant risk and a likely flop because it wasn't a particularly well known IP. I mean, it's the 
the whole system has been reversed. That's a, yeah. That like I, you know, I said I, I was on one of your podcasts, Aaron, but I said like you know what, uh, if if it doesn't have the Marvel logo in front of it, Guardians of the Galaxy would have done Valerian numbers. Yeah. And I'll be very interested to see how well the next batch of Star Wars movies do when they aren't specifically about Luke, Leia, and Han. You know, is it? You know, is it? What would Jupiter, you know, Ascending have done if it was called Star Wars Jupiter Ascending? Yeah, well, if as long as the new characters do things we saw in previous movies and the, their <laughs> arcs play play out exactly like other characters' arcs had done before, then I think we'll be fine, right? That's, that's what we want. Um, no, yeah, it's, it's weird. And the 90s was full of... It wasn't like remakes, but it was, if they did something, it was like the new version of this, or the new, like, you know, they weren't interested in, in doing, quite frankly, the same thing before. It was always, you know, trying to be this fresh new take on something, or like an original film that was going to be the next this or something like that. And then we've we go down the hole in the two thousands of like, uh, you know, the remakes that lead into like rebooting, and everything, and now. Yeah, and and, and, and but that, that was like the night, like even with even down to things like you know, uh, like NBA basketball jerseys or something. We're trying to like take the old one, like toss it out completely with some like hot mess of a '90s styling on it. That would that just looked you know of that specific time. But like yeah, everything it, it wasn't sequel crazy too much in the 90s your sequel was you know bruce willis jean claude van damme steven seagal stuff sylvester stallone are back in this that was pretty much yeah. you know harrison you could have called yeah. yeah and harrison ford it was like you you, you could have called their movies like you know it's it's uh harrison ford nine you know that's what <laughs> those seem like so while they weren't like sequels necessarily you built it off like oh the actor doing a similar movie was that, that you like ja- and then james bond and batman like those are your franchise yeah james yeah. bond batman the, the horror the horror movies were even dying off in sequels well, yeah. like well, the talk, 80s were we, we talked about that yeah horror, yeah horror, horror in the 90s is lesser compare comparably but yeah um, people would go see a, a stargate starship troopers something like that but now it gets looked on as like well that looked weird i'm like why does it look weird it didn't look you know it's just it's new and, and you know yeah, it's so weird. Like I see Valerian trailer, I'm like, I'm excited. I talk to people, they're like, that looks weird, that looks strange. I'm like, would you have said that about you know? I feel like Planet of the Apes would have failed if it was new nowadays. With you know how the way how yeah. critical they are of original sci-fi adventure movies. Well, thinking thinking off of that as well, I, I wonder how impressive. And Scott, you might be able to speak more to this, but I wonder how impressive it was that something was doing so well at the box office versus just being a, a good movie at that point. Because I think when I think of the 90s, I think of movies that weren't necessarily runaway train successes. I think of like a lot of Coen Brother movies or even Tarantino stuff, although Pulp Fiction did really well, or a lot of the things that are coming out of Miramax and what have you, you know, things that are not necessarily things you champion as blockbusters, but just the not even cult hits, just movies that you accept as being the good movies that came out in the 90s. Um, um, sorry, I had a thought, but I lost it. <laughs> well, to talk, to talk back about this movie again, uh, there's, uh, Dave, uh, there's uh, David uh, Wenham again. There's David Wenham, by the way. Um, <laughs> something I'm not, not, not noticing for the first time, but there's a lot of people just talking to each other in a movie. 
in this movie. <laughs> like, as much as we like to, you know, we're going over, like, the weird stuff and what have you, there's a lot of this movie that's just like, hey, here's two characters that are talking to each other now mm-hmm. about stuff that's going on. Which um, is something which is... people don't like anymore. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> it's why Annihilation's going to flop this weekend, or at least people are going to hate it. Uh-huh. But, um... Well, I, I saw, like, even a lot of people complain about some pacing issues with Black Panther. I'm like, you just don't like dialogue scenes, apparently, because there was... I didn't really see too much a problem with the pace. I just there was a lot of rich, um, you know, dialogue, you know, scenes with two people just talking about interesting stuff that people don't apparently care for anymore. Yeah, fortunately, it's still got that A plus cinema score, so it's like I don't right, know. right, <laughs> I know. right. No, it's fine. It's just, I, it's no, a I know what you're saying. Nippy. I'm like, what pace? I'm like, what you just. Yeah, that's why I, I tend to see with a lot of movies that, you know, people, good dramatic scenes, a lot, lot more investing in conversational scenes that people dog pacing. I'm like, that's no, it's not a pacing issue. But. Well, I also think, you know, and this is, call it an advantage, call it a handicap or whatever, but up until a certain point, movies couldn't afford nonstop spectacle and nonstop action. Right. So you had to invest in interesting characters having interesting conversations yeah well yeah because you don't have a studio that's necessarily saying we need to have an action scene every 15 minutes or now we have to do this now we have to do that you have all right we're just going to write this out see where we can get with it and because of the concerns we have with how much money we can spend we have we'll just do this we'll write stuff we'll write scenes for people to talk and share you wouldn't get john mcclain and al chilling talking on the walk on the police radio no you'd get, the, you'd get the fifth Die Hard movie yeah. <laughs> exactly. Oh, um, that—that's what you get. Awful. <laughs> could do a movie. commentary for that. It's been that's, five years. That fucking movie. I swear. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys, you know what was the problem with that movie? The couple moments of Mary Elizabeth Winstead, apparently, because when it came to the unrated or the unrated <laughs> cut on on Blu-ray, she was wiped out because that was the movie's problem. <laughs> No, what's kind of funny is that it's the last scene at the airport where she's there, but Bonnie Bedelia isn't. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, they're divorced. <laughs> That's what matters. They just can't. They can't even get along. They flipped a coin, and she had to stay home. Bonnie That's Bedelia, by the way, plays President Kiefer's uh, stepmother on Designated Survivor. Oh. Yep. I was like, who is that? That looks so... It's like, oh, it's Bonnie Bedelia. It's Mrs. And McClane. she was also on Parenthood for all the seasons. By the way... Kudos, America, for making Designated Survivor an optimistic freaking show. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, My dad and I enjoy watching it. That's for sure. Yeah. It's, it, it makes me feel better. Yeah. <laughs> it's the little uh, I can get. <laughs> um, uh, I like the idea that the strangers designed this one. Obviously, it's supposed to be dark because they can't see on the sun. But also, mm-hmm. it has a very specific pastiche to it. <laughs> As if like they studied past noir, and they studied like Lang, and they studied German Expressionism, what have you. It's like, let's make a world like that. Right, Mr. Hand? <laughs> They're <laughs> fans of Batman animated series. Yeah, they really went yeah. for it. They're huge Bruce. Like, and Bruce they know t- it's Bruce, cheaper Bruce. and more efficient. To start with black and draw onto the black. Yeah, Bruce, Tim, and Paul Dini are among the people in this world. Uh, I like that um, William Hurt, he gets so involved with this case because he's just basically frustrated. He's like, okay, (laughs) the clues aren't helping me here, so I guess I'm helping out the bad guys now. Well, I I, I think this is where the film's 
you know, poignancy really comes into into view. I mean, you know, and, and earlier what I love about this picture is that it really deals with, you know, in a world where really nothing you do has any consequences, what is the value of any of your choices or any of your feelings or your emotions or your, you know, I mean, because nothing's real. Not only is nothing real, nothing's even, there's no past. Um, and I, I, I find William Hurt's character very sad in a good way because he's sort of the one that sort of asked to, that kind of thought he had a life and thought he had, oh, for sure. you know, something, anything. Yeah. Well, yeah, he's, and he's, he's a decent man as well. And so yeah. the, the, the idea that you're pulling the rug out from under him, it, yeah, yeah it, and, and then he immediately dies. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's um, it, it is heartbreaking, but it's, it's a great, I mean, this whole sequence we're going to get where they're on the river going to Shell Beach. It's a great it's a perfect set of characters to have because you have one person who thinks he knows things. Um, you have the, you have Kiefer who knows everything. And then you have Rufus Sewell. Who's just, he's just been thrown into this. And so you have multiple dynamics here at play. And yeah, you're exactly doing that. You're exactly looking at the kind of, and even without knowing where things are going, you're in this position where you have to watch these three people contend with the fact that life is not what they know it to be in various ways. All, and all this stuff is happening around them as far as seeing a, a canal in the middle of a city and what have you. So that, and it's why this exposition dump doesn't feel like an exposition dump. It just feels like, okay, cool. We're getting some, getting some good information right now. Yeah, we're, you know, we're basically, it's, we're 81 minutes into a, what, 111 minute movie. Mm -hmm. And we're finally getting, okay, this is actually what's going on. And they're not done, as you, you know, because you're eventually going to get the big spaceship reveal. Yeah. Um, this is a movie I always point to as an example of where there's storytelling right up to the end. And I like movies like that. Oh, yeah. Even because... though sometimes I think a lot of people don't. <laughs> well, know, something I... like Hancock, which, you know, people bagged on that summer. Oh, no, there's, you know, unrevealed second and third act plot turns. Like, so, I... that's good. I have other issues with Hancock. That's that, yeah, that, that, that wasn't one of them. It's more. Yeah. I don't. I don't think Peter Berg was the right director for that movie. Um, but uh, <laughs> I I see what you're saying about this movie because I a common criticism that I know you have um, is that the film doesn't have much story to tell, so it just becomes a waiting game. So you're like, okay, we all we know where this is going. We know where the characters need to go, and even some of them seem to know where things are going. So let's get there already. And so it becomes yeah. it becomes becomes less interesting by default because, all right. Uh, if we're not going to have interesting scenes of dialogue, I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Uh, yeah. So it's, it just doesn't help. It doesn't benefit anything, no matter how much money you want to put behind certain scenes or what have you. And that was a problem I had, for example, you know, all due respect with Shutter Island, which, you know, looks great, it's well acted, but they established so quickly that nothing is as it seems. You can't believe your eyes. Ergo, from moment to moment, I had no real investment in anything I was seeing on the screen. So I was really waiting for, okay, we're going to find out eventually what's going on here. See, I, 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 I get what you're saying. What I like about, because I think Scorsese is smart enough to get that, the an audience member that's paying attention should know that. They should be very aware yeah. that 
yes, obviously something's up. Like, it's, it's not like it's going to come out and be like, oh, it turns out things weren't as they seemed. Like, I mean, there's no one, no one's thinking <laughs> that. <laughs> like, that. That'd be a hell of a twist, actually, if it was like, oh, things were exactly as they seemed all the time. Like, that, that was great. Never mind. I was, I was worried about nothing. Um, I like that movie as far as it feels like a movie that when you see it the first time, it feels like you're watching it the second time. I, and I yeah. think there's some really creative stuff there as far as the performances, because I, I'm not, if what, watching that the first time, it's like, oh, I'm already examining how these people are performing this thing. Cause I get that something has to be up. I don't quite know what it has to be, but it's getting there. I think Leo's great in that movie. That's why I'd like yeah. to support Shutter. Oh, absolutely. Cause he, cause he's, he's doing basically the same performance in Inception as far as what his arc is. Um, <laughs> but I think Shutter Allen, does a little better. Um, even though it's, he's great in both movies, but still. Anyway, we just heard Kiefer's tragic backstory, how he erased his own memories, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is also really depressing. <laughs> and quite graphic. It's like the most graphic thing in this movie, where he's like bloodied and inserting this needle into his head to erase himself. It's a nice little boat they had. It's nice that the strangers made one of those for some reason. They saw it in a movie, like when they were creating the whole world. They, when they were watching Woody Allen's Shadows and Fog, they went to yes. I guess. <laughs> they were for serious, Woody. None of that bananas nonsense. That was the only one of his movies available. There's that and in interiors. They're like, man, he was a real serious... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's when it's when they found Manhattan Murder Mystery that they decided to insert this mystery plot into the movie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what if Woody Allen was one of the strangers? <laughs> That'd have been a good bonus feature. <laughs> I like this. Like, I like how pandering it is. Like the idea of the strangers, like. Well, I guess we'll put something there for Shell Beach. <laughs> so just put a wall. I like how g- generic their beach name is. Shell Beach. Shell Beach. <laughs> they call them shells. They're all... I like that some of the strangers, despite having no emotion, they seem to have a very dry sense of humor about things. So they really go for it. <laughs> it's kind of their MO. It's like watching Equilibrium and like how flawed that movie is by its very logic. But so you kind of like Tay Diggs is like, of course he has emotions. Like there's every scene he has emotions. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it's kind of like that. Need to watch that film. It's a it's. Oh. I think people really overpraise Equilibrium, but I think it, there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of fun stuff in it. And I think it's it's more the the more you realize how much bullshit the logic of this world is where no one has emotions, the better you can accept the kind of madcap fun that's going on in this movie. In addition the, to uh, the, in addition to the gun food that everyone says is like, oh, this is the best thing ever because they had elaborate fight scenes, I guess, because Kurt Wimmer's a genius. The uh, cover even oversells it with the quote, "Better than the Matrix." Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> that can't, that kept me away from that movie at like the video rental store. Like, so I was like, yeah, I'm not getting this. No way. <laughs> And then I had some friends tell me, oh, it's awesome. And I watched it, and it was kind of like that Boondock Saints thing where it's like, yeah, yeah. this is not. Right, here we go. You're going to fall out of space now, and it's really sad. Because <laughs> you don't want William Hurt to die. It's William Hurt. No. That <laughs> hurt. Yep. But it's a great, like, this is a great effect. I love this. Oh, yeah. Get this wonderful shot 
of what and he's and he's like the the idea that he's like frozen in time even though it's space like just the way that and then you just zoom out and here we are we oh, get yeah. all of the city in this wide shot and it's like oh my god this place is complicated <laughs> like, would you call this phone booking william hurt <laughs> I watched um, History of Violence the other day, and mm-hmm. man, is he good in all eight minutes of his screen time. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, he <laughs> com- I mean, he command His Oscar-nominated the, the performance. I... Yeah. I can't remember. Does he show... He shows up before the end, right? No, it's the only the end. Or it's... the only end. Yeah, because he comes in. They build this guy up, the whole movie, and it's just like, whoo. I mean, it could be a letdown, but holy crap. He got an Oscar nomination for it. Yeah, so that's right. Like... I remember. Yeah. I like this. Cool. This Sewell is great right here, where he's just like he's processing everything at once. <laughs> like, he's terrific. He's really good there. I want to see more Sewell and things. I remember getting excited because he was like the villain in the Legend of Zorro, and then I got pissed off because like that movie was terrible, and Sewell got really fat, and I was like, "What's happening?" <clears throat> then he's back in like Hercules recently, and he lost all the weight. So it's like good for him. <laughs> all right, let's see. Let's and see gods of Egypt. And go- and gods of Egypt. Yes. Mm-hmm. The reteaming. The re. Yep. <laughs> That did get me more excited when I saw that cast. I was like, oh, Sewell's back? Great. <laughs> <laughs> well, he kind of, you know, he kind of looks, not like a little, the, him and Stuart Townsend kind of look a little alike. Yeah. And maybe he was Stuart Townsend because they were trying to push him on us for a long time. Maybe he was Did they try that getting hard, his though? <laughs> I mean, no. what? How, how hard did they really try with Stuart Townsend? <laughs> Well, I mean, they gave it the Queen of the Damned and League of Fox. Extraordinary Gentlemen. Like he was getting Hits. some bigger pro, and his name was in some bigger projects too. That like Lord of the Rings, he was yeah, going to be in. He was going to be Aragon. Aragon, yeah. Aragorn, Maybe Aragorn. Stuart sorry, Townsend, uh, Sean Connery, Lord of the Rings. Yeah. <laughs> that could have happened. But don't worry, folks. They did get together, so. I like I love the people in Lord of the Rings. Vigo's become like the most method actor possible. I always love I you know Scott and I both had the same like pro, like idea about Vigo Mortensen until like Lord of the Rings where we thought he was just this pretty face guy in movies or something. Yeah, like, day, like daylight. Yeah, because he was in like the the Dial M for Murder Murder remake oh, yeah. uh, and yeah, stuff. Like, and, why does this guy get billing? And then you think he's just this airhead guy, and then you, you see the bonus features in Lord of the Rings. He's just like, I like fly fishing and uh, do it. You know, he's just this calm, like it's really funny. method guy. You're like, oh. It's funny because I didn't have much of an impression. I didn't see many Vigo movies before Lord of the Rings. The only one I could think of, of him well, was of like, course, what? you bashed uh, Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre yeah, 3 exactly. before yeah. going yeah. on the air. Like, the yeah. o- but the only one I had I could think of was like Carlito's Way, where he plays like a cripple so, with an accent. Yeah. So, like, I don't really have much of it. G.I. Jane. Even then, yeah, he's like a hard ass in that movie. Like yeah. he's not like a he's not like a pretty face. Yeah. No, I I first noticed him in a perfect murder. Where yeah, I, I and Psycho. He did the Pitchcock remake yeah. thing. I don't talk about that. Um, and he's very good in a perfect murder. I like that movie. Yeah. I think that was a lot of good fun. Is that the end I, of, I like? The, is that the end of Michael Douglas sex thrillers? Perfect murder. Is that the last one? Uh, I want to say yes. The, um, sen- the Sentinels, Michael Douglas. Sadly, no. <laughs> I 
I uh, the, the the delivery that Kiefer has there, where he says, "I have other intentions," when he injects his own brand in there, it's great. It's a great moment. This, all of his his entire monologue is very funny. Yeah, this, this is I love this so whole, like yeah cool. these, this memory insertion that he's doing right now. And the look, like, we, Brandon, we talk about this a lot, kind of the 90s mm-hmm. look of a lot of films. This right. looks very 90s, but it's still really cool, like, this use of, yeah, like, flashing yeah. through things. Yeah, it's an effect I've seen, yeah, you know, you see done a lot, but this one's... Mm-hmm. And based on this scene, it looks like Kiefer probably had the toughest job in this movie. Like, he has, to have yeah. all this, he has to have this ridiculous makeup, for one thing, but he also has to be mm-hmm. in every set of the movie. Oh, yeah. He has to be in every scene. If you're needed for 20 minutes today. I'd love yeah, to see my some scotch rack this. full. I'd love to see that whole, like there's a blueprint or whatever of how the machine works. I'd love to see what that looks like. Maybe that's in the production stills on the Blu-ray. I should check this out. No. Explore further. That's the rose seller. (laughs) (laughs) These little things he's popping up. Jennifer Connelly, too. She has to be involved in a lot of these scenes. This is not not an easy movie, guys. That's what I'm saying, I guess. This is a little little effort went behind this. Spent some money. Yeah. I like that the the conclusion is a battle of wills. Like, it's not, there's no, like, fist fighting going on at this point. It's just, all right, yeah. I'm going to stand around and look at people intensely and make it happen. Take my look. And the score, again, I like this score a lot. It's so, like, big for a movie mm-hmm. that, does, that doesn't feel like it needs this kind of bigness. Bigness. Bigosity. Bigosity. <laughs> The director's cut helps with these effects a bit. It uh, smooths things out, adds some stuff. It still looks a little like, yeah, it's a $27 million movie, but, you know, right. it looks good. You know, this movie's too... I I, I don't want to say, but, like, this movie's, like, too good and confident with it. Like, I don't think... I could see someone, like, not in the near future but down the line trying to like remake this that's like grown up a fan of it or something like that but i i'd like to say this movie's all there to do that but you know you never know like we mentioned psycho got remade so i think this film even with even though it's not super expensive i think it's as good as it needs to be right yeah that's well, it's the yeah. same. It's the same logic as Scott you said on our Crow commentary, where it's like there's no, yeah. even though there are sequels in a TV show and a comic book that I'll go with the Crow. Yeah. The first Crow movie is pretty much all you can do with the Crow. Like there's not there's no yeah. there's no reason to do it again because why you've accomplished what you need to accomplish with that property, and that's an IP. This is just whatever. Yeah. Like this is just a thing. <laughs> it's actually it's I'm surprised that there's not like an IDW comic book for this shit, this 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 movie or something. Like there's oh, nothing yeah. here. But it's yeah, like, you're right. I'm surprised no one hasn't exploited this. Yeah, there's no like fan fiction. Or it's probably fan fiction, but no like published fan fiction or anything like that. It just kind of exists on its own. No and Funko I, Dark City bubbles. Yeah. <laughs> and, Dark City porn. But I mean, 
I don't expect it. I, I mean, I see what you're saying, Brad, but I don't really expect it. I know it has a cult following, but I don't think yeah. it's going to be... The kind of reverence it has isn't in the same league as something like Blade Runner. Right. Well, I mean, that, that, that's, I, I guess I, I still sometimes get stuck in, you know, the day, like back in the day, like, you know, remakes used to be of movies that were dated or didn't do well or something, you know, trying to make a better version of a movie that didn't. You know, this one works, but box office wise, it wouldn't be looked at as that. But and I think that's I why our, you know, current remake trends are so frustrating to people, even people like us that should know better, is that it's a change in, in viewpoint. In the mm-hmm. old days, as you said, you know, you, re- you remake Sam Peckinpah as a getaway because maybe there's room for improvement. But today, you remake The Wild Bunch because it's perfect. Right. Oh, because people notice the title. Yeah. Uh, that's... You know, it's. It, it, in the old, quote-unquote, old days, you didn't necessarily want general audiences to know that The Preacher's Wife was a remake. Right. Um, but today, you remake The Preacher's Wife specifically because it's something that everyone's heard of. Right. And I mean, people were always against them. I mean, it's not like being against a remake's a new thing. People were against the uh, 70s Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake when it came out, too, because you know that first one is, I think, is still good and stuff, but they're, yeah. they're both very good films. I think all three of those are pretty good. Oh, I always—I yeah. don't even dislike the invasion for what it's worth. It has its obviously moments. a very compromised film, but it's interesting. It's got its at their, moments. It, at their know. core, like all of them, you know, it's—it's it's a strong core. So that yeah, you, yeah. Know, making a good movie out of it works. I love that the the boss battle that we just saw it concludes yes. with knife in the chest into a water tower. <laughs> like, it's such a brilliant thing. <laughs> It's so it's like it's such a great way of getting around of ex- an explosion. Mm-hmm. It's like how do we do this? Yeah. <laughs> how about a water tower? And then like some effect from Mortal Kombat spews out of this thing. But you know, it's right. fine. like whatever. <laughs> it's from the Dark C- uh, Dark City CD-ROM companion game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've earned it. You uh, can rearrange the population. It works because it's it's rooted in everything that we know about this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, 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 Ebert has like a way better way of explaining why he loves this finale. So I'll just let you listen to that commentary to get that interpretation, but it does work. Well, it works because for one thing, they do the work of setting up why you can do this all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. You know, and the payoff is, oh, neat. Kurt, uh, Kiefer Sutherland, you know, basically implanted, you know, years and years of training. That's well, actually really clever. It's the kind of thing you like sneakily want to see. He's like, okay, yeah. there's a power that exists what's the maximum version of that power? And they deliver on that, but it earns yeah. it. Like you said, it, it, the film earns what it get, what it gives. And the wrong viewer takes the message from this is, oh, I can't wait to see him do more of that in the sequel. <laughs> I, never, I, I never get my way with sequels, but my sequel would be so boring because it would just be him having a perfect life. <laughs> living on <laughs> Living on Shell Beach, yeah. having a right. daily like you know routine that he does, just hanging out with Jennifer Connelly, just sitting around. It's like, hey, <laughs> I made some daiquiris. <laughs> That's We're it. gonna keep the sci-fi, world, but this is gonna I'm... be a nice uh, dramedy. <laughs> In this world, I'm the rocketeer. I like this is and a, just to, just to show you got you people proof the earth is flat <laughs> <laughs> the um 
the the machinery to make this world work is so abstract to me because I love that they can they can do anything apparently they can create a sun they can create like they can create the things they don't want yet they're the ones that design this machine it makes mm-hmm. there's like what's happened how does this work how does this make it's a movie it does, it's a science fiction fantasy movie it doesn't have to make sense but you know this one this movie's old it gets a pass but if no, this comes out no. today they're like the planet doesn't make any sense yeah no brandon i need a buzzfeed article give me 18 reasons how this makes sense oh yeah like <laughs> it doesn't make sense because you know like i know everything about the universe apparently and other dimensions and whatnot that you have to play by my earth rules everything does yeah. That's I can't see beyond my front lawn, especially when I go vote. Anyways, um, <laughs> Book of Dreams is coming soon. Life isn't there, ma'am. Is Requiem for a Dream the one that has basically the exact same ending with her on the beach or on the on the pier or something? Uh, no, no, uh, yeah, that uh... that is the ass to ass ending. Um... Well, yeah, yeah, I know that's the climax. But what, what am I thinking? <laughs> Literally, <There's> another right? <laughs> benefit. <laughs> Indeed. Um... Ah, there's another Jennifer Connelly movie that has a very similar ending. House of Sand and Fog, maybe? I don't know. I haven't seen Requiem. In that's that. another, that's another pick-me-up. Yeah, well, yeah. Requiem ends with like a bunch of just chaos going on. That's, yeah, and yeah. that's part of it. <laughs> so, uh, is that... How did A Beautiful Mind end? Is that one? <laughs> um, with text on the screen explaining what happened next. <laughs> Elijah now resides in an asylum for criminally insane. I, I'm just watching because these interactions are yeah. fascinating to me. It's just, <laughs> but the the strangers are. I, I like that he disrupts the world so much that it's just killing all the strangers. But at the same time, he's like, "I'm going to be a dick about it and tell you what you missed." <laughs> like, <laughs> and talk about like cathartic release, opening a door that leads to actual sunlight. Wonderful. <laughs> It's maybe both the most obvious way to end a movie called Dark City by bringing light into it, but it's brilliant. <laughs> it fits so well. Look, he's now a god figure. Let there be light. Mm-hmm. These miniatures are great. Like it just like it's neat. This just the way they're shot at. It's like where you get that they're miniatures, but you can't, especially if you know miniatures, but it's like. Got to tune some suntan lotion, too, now.
very Truman Show. Yeah. Oh, oh. Actually, there are some probably pretty good uh, relatable qualities between those two movies, come to think of it. Yeah, Edge TV is the one that predicted the future. Well, of the three, Ed has an Oscar. <laughs> So we did something. He did something, right? What do you think's going on in Shell Beach right now that he created it? He put a lighthouse there. Um, Doubles Beach Volleyball Tournament? Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Very confusing layout, by the way. It's like the edge of a city. There's like a giant yeah. wall behind him. And she's headed... That, where is she headed? Is there like a bus route that goes to the, the wall right here? Yeah, Murdoch. I changed that name to... Great. That's quite a leap. <laughs> he may fall off the edge of Dark City, but he'll be back. In Dark City, reloaded. <laughs> so that's the movie. Still holds up. I mean, this font looks weird. This font looks like something I'm, you know, like a maybe like a cool font you used for your movie you were making at home, like in high school in the nineties. Oh, this looks more like a Jeanette film or Del Toro or Cronenberg. <laughs> it does really yeah. yeah. Dark City. Like if this was at the if this was the mimic credits, I would be all about this. This makes most the most sense. Like the same thing, Bobby, <laughs> with Men in Black. Men in Black has really weird font styles, like for a movie about like high tech. <laughs> secret agent people yeah it has this kind of font it fits more that font in men in black fits more like the Adam's bug family. it follows at the beginning yeah it's yeah, it, very it, Adam's it, it fits sonnenfeld's other movie <laughs> yeah his poor man's tim burton but yeah hey, he's... he has his own friends but he's, he's very much <laughs> yeah. i mean he he rose to the challenge of those adam's family movies yeah then he went a different direction with get shorty which is like, huh? It's all, it's weird stacking those films against each other. It's like he made those, and then he did Get Shorty. <laughs> then he went back to those with the Men in Black movies, and somehow RVs in there. It's weird. Yeah, Seinfeld has a weird, has a weird list. <laughs> yeah, all right. We've talked about Dark City. <laughs> we're going, I'm trying to think of anything else to say. <laughs> movies in its credits now. Um, there's no sequels, there's no remakes, anything. There's, else to like, there's, no, there's no continued media here. We talked about the box office. You can just watch similar films of the era mm -hmm. that were like Perhaps this. Perhaps you've heard of a film called The Matrix? I <laughs> we'll hear put, it's good. We'll put links to where you can find The Matrix in the uh, notes, um, as well as a plot synopsis in case you want to know. Unfortunately, we can't in. tell you what The Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. You, yeah, if you want to watch uh, The or Matrix, you click the red button. If you don't, you can learn. You can learn. You can learn more about this at whatisthematrix.com. Yes, 
I wonder what that does. We're going to try that right now. By the way, Scott, you're completely right. Uh, Requiem for a Dream and House of Sand and Fog both have shots of yeah. Connolly looking at the end of a pier in an ocean. Oh. I'm a genius. What is it's, the a, it's in our contract. Dot com. <laughs> it's not a GeoCity site. Currently unavailable. <laughs> it's it's a Warner Brothers site. Um, it is owned by Warner Brothers, but it is unavailable at this time. What is the Matrix 2019? <laughs> That's the one that what's his name? Zach. Uh, who got the thing? Yeah. Who's uh, who's who's remaking the Matrix? <laughs> no one's not going to happen. It'll be on the all day marathon with Tetris, Captain Planet, Ashes the Christ two, and, and, the, uh, and the crow, and the crow, and the crow, right? And the crow, yeah. Zach Penn. Yep. Zach Penn was the one. Zach right. Penn. X Men. Zach Penn. And Avengers. I thought he has. I forgot he has a story credit on Avengers. What I gather, his script was very different than what ended up on screen. Yeah, I mean, when you have Whedon involved. Yeah. The the, the much beloved Whedon that no one has any problem with these days. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, kind of. Either die some, a hero. <laughs> so much yeah. some iterations on that. Um. But yeah, all right. Well, we talked about Dark City. Great movie to watch. Uh, where can people find more of your work online? Let's start with Brandon. Uh, cult Cinema Cavalcade, which is cultcinemacavalcade.com. You can all on social media at CC Cavalcade. My personal Twitter is uh, at BT Peters. And you, I, I have I have a couple reviews on com. Scott? Uh, Forbes.com. You can Google the ticket booth. Uh, every day, all day. Now more than ever. Uh, you can find You can find me... Uh, writing reviews over at wisewithblue.com and wheelofentertainment.com. You can find me on Twitter at Aaron's PS4. Um, I just found this um, this little bit of trivia. Uh, apparently, test screening audiences were troubled by the notion that the entire city wasn't sucked into space once Shell City was breached, so the force field was created at the last minute. I just thought that was that's pretty neat. <laughs> that's, that's audiences complaining about the logic of the world. Was well, this from like a, a test screening from last week or? <laughs> It was it was it was audiences that were that were um, time traveled to to when the movie was coming out to have those kind of complaints. Um, but yeah. Anyway, you can find all the other episodes out now there in Abe over on iTunes as well as on Audio Boom. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook. You know where you can find all our stuff and everything. Um, this has been fun, uh, Scott Brandon. Yeah. Thank you both for joining us for the for me for the Dark City commentary. Yeah, thanks for having me. I always love keeping my square warm. <laughs> uh, we will determine what we talk about next month uh, soon enough I guess but yeah that's going to do it Twilight that's going to the other Twilight <laughs> <laughs> that's that's going to do it for uh, this uh, this month's commentary track so until next time so long and goodbye one more and more rhythm start to play
Thank mm-hmm. you.